Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea, chapter 8. We're going to read together there in just a moment. Vicki and I are uh, just, man, we're glad to be back. We've been gone for the last few weeks, and um, I'm always reminded how much I love FBCO and how much I look forward to being back. We worshiped with my mom a couple weeks ago, with my daughter and son-in-law in Texas uh, last, uh, two weeks ago, and then up in the balcony uh, with the sinners uh, last week. No, it's, no I, it, was a, it was a different perspective. I slipped in there. And I have, um, I'll, I'll, I'm glad you're here. Everyone's here. But I do have some family members here. My mom and uh, all three of my brothers and two of the sisters-in-law are here. Uh, last service, my mom, one of my brothers, and two of my brothers, Dan and Don and Denise, his, Don's wife, are all here with us. And uh, man, I love my family. I'm grateful for them, grateful for my brothers. They, they need the sermon. Don't get me wrong. They need every bit of the sermon they get, and really they need a lot more than that. But I, I love them. I'm for them, and i um, glad they're able to worship with us today and glad that they're sitting in the front where I can keep an eye on them. Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea chapter 8, and we're going through this great book of the Bible, though it's been a while since I've been back with you on this, but let's go to chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Can you stay with me? Can you handle this? Let's do it. Ready? Hosea chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, Put the ram's horn to your mouth. One like an eagle comes against the house of the Lord because they transgress my covenant and rebel against my law. Israel cries out to me, My God, we know you. Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They've installed kings, but not through me. They've appointed leaders, but without my approval. They make their silver and gold into idols for themselves, for their own destruction. Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For this thing is from Israel. A craftsman made it, and it is not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. There is no standing grain. What sprouts fails to yield flour. Even if they did, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery, for they've gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey going off on its own. Ephraim is paid for love. Even though they hire lovers among the nations, I will now round them up, and they will begin to decrease in number under the burden of the king and leaders. When Ephraim multiplied his altars for sin, they became his altars for sinning. Though I were to write out for him 10,000 points of my instruction, they would be regarded as something strange." Though they offer sacrificial gifts and eat the flesh, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their guilt and punish their sin, and they will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. I will send fire on their cities, and it will consume their citadels. Well, I want you to note what the Bible says. Would you go back to verse 7? Just note what the Bible says there. Indeed, they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. I want you to get a basic principle. It's a principle of life, and it's a spiritual truth, and it's one of the most important concepts you'll get in order to gain maturity personally and spiritually. Let's just note this principle. The choices you make have lasting consequences. You might want to write that down. The choices you make have lasting consequences. Every path you get on leads somewhere. Every valley has a low. Every mountain has a high. You're, you're going somewhere. You're on some path. And if you don't like the ultimate destination, then you need to think about the path you're on. The Bible says here, 
they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. We, we have a, an advantage here in Illinois in a sense with this because um, we know about reaping and sowing. If you live here very long, uh, you'll know about reaping and sowing. Um, really, Illinois has, is really, our state is really good at three, really three big things. Corn and soybeans and taxes. Those are the big three. <laughs> Those three are really good. If, that's, if you like those things, you're in the right place. Well, we know, the farmer knows, certainly, if you plant a grain of corn, you're going to get a, you do that so that you'll get a harvest of corn. You plant a grain of wheat, you get a harvest of wheat. You, you, the Bible says you reap what you sow. So if you want corn, you sow corn. You want wheat, you reap. You, want, you sow wheat in order to reap wheat. And not only are we uh, filled with advantages because we know something about sowing and reaping, we also know something, the Bible says, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. We know something here about wind and whirlwinds. Every once in a while in the Midwest, there'll be some tornado somewhere. And someone said to me not that long ago, they said, I'm so scared to move to the Midwest where where they have uh, tornadoes. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but I mean, but it's always a danger. Where are you from? And they said, from California. You know, we don't have any problems in California. Well, we know something about tornadoes, unfortunately. We know there's danger. And really the principle is this. You don't just reap what you sow. You reap more than what you sow in a sense. So one grain, one kernel of corn results in hundreds of kernels of corn. One grain of wheat results in hundreds of grains of wheat. And the Bible is saying, man, one, if you're going to sow wind, you're going to get something. You're just going to get more of it. And it won't be what you want. And you'll reap the whirlwind. There'll be the tornado in your life, the judgment that comes from God. And that's really the story of chapter 8. God is saying, Israel, there's a whirlwind coming. There's judgment coming. You you've have sown the wind, and now you're going to get the harvest of the whirlwind. And so let's note some principles if we don't want the whirlwind, if we don't want that end result, if we don't like the direction we're going on that path that's leading somewhere, well, let's note four ways that we sow the wind in order to avoid this, in order to avoid reaping the whirlwind. Let's note how we can, uh, what the wind, how we can sow the wind so that we learn from this lesson. Number one, would you note we sow the wind, you sow the wind when you break your commitment. So one of the reasons Israel was going to reap the whirlwind was because they had sown the wind of a broken commitment. Verse 1 tells about how they are, uh, the Lord is speaking to the house of the Lord. This is not just a, like a pagan nation that knows nothing of God. These are people who name the name of the Lord, God's people. And, the, and yet the Bible says, they transgress my covenant and they rebel against my law. They made commitments, but they don't keep them. And Israel cries out in verse 2, my God, we know you. And the Lord said, man, you've rejected what is good. And you're going to have an enemy pursue you. You're going to reap the whirlwind because you have sown the wind. So here's what the Lord is teaching us. Do you remember the story, how the story started, uh, the book of Hosea, all those long time ago? Do you remember how it started? This guy named Hosea was a prophet. And God said, listen, I want you to do something for me, Hosea. I want you to do something for me. I want you to get married. And Hosea must have thought, well, great. I mean, I'd love to start a family, and this will be great. But then God said, I want you to marry a wife of promiscuity. Do you remember that? A wife of promiscuity. 
I want you to find a wife. She won't be faithful to you. I mean, she's going to make a commitment to you. She says, you're not going to keep it. And you're going to have then children of promiscuity. You won't even know if they're yours. And Hosea must have kind of gulped. And sure enough, he found a woman that matched that description, a woman named Gomer. And I bet that made him gulp as well. Gomer? I'm going to be married to a woman named Gomer? Yeah. And Gomer's going to be a wife of promiscuity, and she's going to have children of promiscuity. And sure enough, that was the, that's what happened. And chapter 8 is teaching us this. Get this. Israel might have said, man, we're like, we're like Hosea, you know, people have wronged us. No, no, God is saying, listen, Israel, you're like Gomer. You are the wife of promiscuity because you made a commitment to me. We're in a covenant relationship. And you have abandoned that, and you reject my commands and my statutes, and you go your own way. And you're, I made you to be mine, and yet you are chasing everything else in the world. And he's saying, Israel, you're the wife of promiscuity. Listen, it goes another step. This is not just teaching us that Israel was like Gomer, the wife of promiscuity. But when we read the lesson, we say, boy, I'm like, I relate to poor Hosea, you know, the wife of promiscuity, the problems that came. We are like Israel, who is like Gomer. And the Lord gives us this lesson to remind us of this truth, because we say, our confession is, Jesus is Lord. The basic confession of our faith is Jesus is Lord. And yet, sometimes we chase everything but God. And we go our own way. And we're like Gomer, chasing everything, going every direction, breaking our commitments. I was um, traveling this week with my brothers and my mom. We went to see all the places where we had lived as, as kids. We grew up here in the state, and my dad was a construction worker, so we lived lots of different places. We went to all those little towns and remembered back where we had lived, all these little towns around the state. And then we saw some of the places where my mom had lived in Missouri. And then we went to some ancient relatives that we, don't, we didn't even know where they lived. We, just, we, didn't, we couldn't get enough travel. So we went on this trip together, you know, just uh, it was a good opportunity for us to air grievances and uh, get it back into, you know, fisticuffs or something if we wanted to. But really, it was a great experience to kind of travel again. But when I was there, I was reminded of some commitments that I had made along the way. So we, we uh, stopped in one of the small towns in southern Illinois where uh, I had gone to a, we went right to the church building where years ago I gave my life to Christ, where I heard the message of the gospel, That's, which is it's more, the gospel message is more than be good and stop being bad and try to be nicer. Here, here's what it is. You have sinned against God who is holy. And that sin separates you from God. And if you got what you deserved, you'd be eternally separated from God in hell, if you got what you deserved. And I came to realize that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And I realized that Jesus lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. And he was worthy to die the death that I deserved. And he died in my place on that cross. When we took communion, I was reminded that as a boy, I recognized that he took my place. And then he provided the miracle of the resurrection. And because of that, as a boy, I repented of my sin and I trusted Christ and I was saved. Some of you are here who have never trusted Christ and you thought Christianity is be better, try to be nicer, don't be so mean. And you've missed this. God is saying, I want you, not just like the outside. I want you. And I made a commitment as a 
boy that trusts Christ as my Savior. I was reminded of that commitment. I was reminded in another town in central Illinois of the commitment I made to really follow the Lord, to say I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life and live for him and follow him. And it was the place where I was called to ministry. It's the place where Vicky and I were married. I was reminded of these commitments. And God is saying, listen, you've made some commitments along the way, Israel, but you're not keeping them. You're, you're just like Gomer who made a commitment. I'm going to marry you, Hosea. I'm going to be faithful to you. But she wasn't. Israel said, I'm going to, we're going to follow you, God. We're your people. But they weren't. And much like many of us who are believers who know Christ as Savior, and yet we say Jesus is Lord, but not always do we keep those commitments. And maybe God brought you to this place today to remind you that if you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And one of the ways you sow the wind is when you break your commitment. Principle number two, you sow the wind when your worship is false. When your worship is false. God often talks to us about worship about how we worship and why we worship, the attitude behind worship. He talks here, first of all, about the, about the Israelites having the wrong object of worship. And so let's go to verse 5. The Bible says, Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. So apparently Samaria had made an idol in the shape of a calf, of all things, in the shape of a calf, and God said, I'm rejecting it. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Boy, that's, a, a, that's an America sounding like verse, isn't it? Incapable of innocence. For this thing's from Israel. A craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria will be smashed to bits. God is saying, man, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You have the wrong object of worship. By the way, it sounds silly, doesn't it? To form a calf out of gold and say, that's my God. But it is not any sillier. Listen, it's not any sillier than what we do today when we, make our in, when we make our own idol that looks a lot like us, by the way, a lot like us, and we say, that's what I'm going to worship. Anything you put it in first place in your life ahead of God becomes your idol. It could be possessions or power or pleasure or whatever it is that you say, that's what I'm, I'm going I'm to chase that. That's what's most important in my life. The, the only one worthy of your worship is the Lord. And nothing else and no one else, not even yourself, especially not yourself, is an adequate idol. And so you sow the, wor- the wind when your worship is false, and the Bible talks about the wrong object of worship, but it also talks about the wrong attitude of worship. Very often the Bible talks about the wrong attitude of worship. Verse 11 calls us to this. Uh, when Ephraim multiplied his altars for sin, they became his altars for sinning. They had altars, great, religious, but it was altars for sinning. Though I were to write out for him 10,000 points of my instruction, verse 12 says, they have the word. Instead, they regard it as something strange. They don't keep it. Verse 13, though they offer sacrificial gifts, great, you make sacrifice, the Lord doesn't accept them. That is, they had the, not only the wrong object of worship, the wrong attitude of worship. Can I just tell you, there's, a, there's just always this danger. Let's, just, let's be honest with ourselves about this. There's this danger that we can go through the motions of worship and have the wrong attitude of worship. And, and our focus is on the, just the wrong things. The attitude, the spirit of worship, where we make it about ourselves or about our preference or we come with a lousy attitude to church and kind of keep it all the way through and Blame it on everyone else but ourselves. That's an easy thing for us to do. And the Lord speaks often about the attitude of worship, the object of worship, only the Lord himself, but also how we worship. You know that Pharisees were super religious. 
but they didn't know God when he stood before them in the flesh. And there's always the danger that we can go just through the motions of worship and not worship him. I suppose I hear this excuse for why, they, why we can't worship God or why we can't do what God wants. I suppose I hear this more than any. Can I just say parenthetically before I say what the excuse is? If you're looking for an excuse, you'll find it. You want an excuse for why, not go, why you don't need to go to church or why you don't have to follow what God says? Or, you'll find it. If you're looking for one, you'll find it. The enemy himself will be happy to supply some extra ones if you're running low on some excuse. He'll be happy to do that. You can always find a reason. I know what God says, but, or I don't do this because, and we can always blame someone else besides ourselves. But I suppose I hear this as much as any. And those hypocrites in the church. And they're right. Because there's a sense in which we are all hypocrites. We say, those, all of us who name the name of Christ, we say Jesus is Lord, and yet we're imperfect. We're imperfect at following him as Lord. I mean, not just you, but not just you, all of us. Imperfect. We say Jesus is Lord. We don't always follow him as Lord. And while I recognize that, can I just say, I hate, I hate the hypocrisy that can come in our lives at any point. But woe unto us when our hypocrisy is accepted. Woe unto us if we say, all right, no big deal, doesn't matter. Because it matters deeply to God, and it ought to matter deeply to us. And if you want to reap the, soul, the whirlwind, here's a good way to do it. Man, just let your worship be fake and false. Let it be about you or anyone else except the Lord himself. Let it be done with the wrong attitude and spirit. Let your heart grow cold and hard and reap the whirlwind. There's a third principle I want you to note. You sow the wind when you depend on the wrong help. If you don't want to reap the whirlwind, don't sow the wind. But you sow the wind when you depend on the wrong help. And verse 8 in our text tells us a little of how Israel did this. The Bible says Israel is swallowed up. Now they're among the nations like discarded pottery. Archaeologists, and by the way, archaeology has been a great friend of the Bible, of course, because people have said, well, the Bible can't be true because there's nothing in the Bible about this. And then archaeology discovers it over and over and over again. But often as archaeologists are digging, sometimes they'll find the great, the full vase. But lots of times they find just the broken pottery, just people just, you know, a pot breaks, a vase breaks, and they just put it in the trash heap. And that's what the Bible is saying. Israel, you're just going into the trash heap of history instead of being the people God wants you to be. Verse 9 says they've gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey going off on its own. They paid for their love. I mean, they're chasing this nation, Assyria, because Assyria had a great army, and they were powerful. And so the people said, listen, we, we better put our faith in Assyria. We better trust them. Instead of trusting God, let's trust Assyria. Assyria's got some great armies. You know, the guys are pretty tough. We can depend upon them. Verse 10 says they hire lovers among the nations. I mean, they're, they're like Gomer, who's hiring lovers. Israel's hiring the nations. And they're depending upon everyone except the Lord. They're going to the wrong help. Listen, if you, there's some things that are just too big for you, and you might find yourself, instead of depending upon the Lord, depending upon others, depending upon yourself, depending on your talents. Some of you are super talented. And here's the danger. You, you'll start depending on your talent. God has blessed some of you with great possessions, and you'll start depending upon those possessions. 
And you'll start thinking, I, I don't need, I don't really need God. I'm okay. And, uh, and I'll turn to the wrong things. You'll think if I could chase enough, I mean, I could just find enough money. I'll be happy. It'll never be, en- it'll never be enough. If I could get enough power, if I could get that promotion. Listen, pr- promotions cannot produce the joy that God wants for your heart. There's something more. Whatever it is you're chasing after. My son-in-law had me help him move some weeks back. They were just moving there in Texas an hour and a half away, and I was helping to move. And I knew there's going to be some problems. I helped them move a couple years earlier, but that was a couple of years earlier, and now it was a couple of years older, and I was going to help them move. And that poor guy decided to depend upon me, and I knew there was going to be a problem on several areas, but one of the worst problems was an old couch. Newer couches, furniture today can be lighter. They have material that make louder, lighter. In the old days, if you wanted something to be super sturdy, you just made a lot of it, and it's super heavy. And this was an old couch. I don't know why they kept the old couch. I think they're on the way to becoming hoarders or something. I don't know why do you keep, I mean, it's just a terrible old couch, but they wanted to keep it. And so the very first thing we moved out of the house and into the truck was, a, um, was this old couch while we still had our strength. And then we moved all day, and then that night we moved everything out, and the last thing to go was that couch. And I just realized this is going to be terrible, and my son-in-law is depending upon me, and so I did all I could. I mean, I picked it up as best I could, and I realized as we were walking along, couldn't go through the closest door, of course. It wouldn't fit there. We had to go through the side door. And I realized as I'm walking along, I'm either going to have to stop and rest or die right here. And obviously, I didn't die right there, and it's only because I stopped and rested. Thank heavens, I, my son-in-law was so glad I stopped. He said, oh, I couldn't go hardly. I was just hoping you would fall. I, was, I wish he'd have fallen first, of course. But he was depending on me. I have some things I just couldn't do. I'm just telling you, if he waits two more years to move, in fact, it doesn't matter when he moves, I'm never moving that couch again. That is it. It's done. Pay somebody, pay lots of somebodies to do it, big young guys to do it. We're depending on everything. We're like, we're a little bit. If we're not careful, we're like Gomer who's chasing every, every guy that comes along thinking that'll satisfy. It never satisfied. If I could just get the right job, just get the right person, just get the right position, just get the, enough these possessions, it'll never be enough. And so we find ourselves sowing wind. That's going to lead to a whirlwind. Principle number four. You sow the wind when you forget your need for God. That's really the story here of Israel and Gomer, and if we're not careful of us, verse 14 says, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. And then the Lord says, I'm going to send fire on their cities and consume their citadels. So here's what Israel's saying. Israel's saying, man, we don't really need God because we have palaces. We're comfortable and we're not living in a hovel anymore, you know. We're not in some tent. We've got a palace. We're comfortable. And some of you perhaps have said something like this. You don't say it out loud, but maybe you've said it internally. I'm comfortable. I don't really need God. I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't have any problems except my first world problems. I'm comfortable. I don't really need God. Can I just tell you something? God's goal for your life is not comfort. Maybe, maybe that's what you thought. God just wants to make you comfortable and make your life really smooth and easy. God calls us to Christ-likeness, not comfort. So what God sometimes wants to do is to stretch us. We don't, we don't always like to stretch. It, kinda, it can be a little difficult, but God wants to stretch us. 
He wants to challenge us. We don't always like to be challenged, but God challenges us. He says, I want you to go against the culture. We want to go with the culture. God said, I want you to be unpopular. I mean, you go the opposite way. When all the river's going downhill, you're, you're going uphill. And God doesn't always let us be comfortable. It's not God's goal. It's not his desire. And some of the greatest things God does are in times when we're uncomfortable and God stretches us and develops us and molds us and makes us. And no matter how comfortable you may feel right now, i just tell you, you need God. But in your comfort, you can begin to think you're okay. I've got a palace. I'm all right. Nothing could be further from the truth. Notice, about, notice Judah. Judah said, we don't really need God because we have security. We've got fortified cities. Our cities have big walls around them. We just store some food here, have a water source. We're okay. We say it like this in America. I'm safe. I don't really need God. No big problems right now. Don't, I don't really need God. Can I just tell you something? God is not primarily concerned with your safety. His goal for your life is not primarily security. In fact, God is more likely to call you to sacrifice than he is to security. You, you remember what Jesus said? If anyone wants to follow, come after me, do you remember, remember what he said? Deny yourself. What? Yeah, deny yourself. Take up your cross each day and follow me. And that's what God calls us to Safety, security, man, that could keep us from God. Comfort, wealth, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves depending on it. And pretty soon we forget our maker. And we find ourselves depending on Assyria. And we find ourselves going back to slavery in Egypt. And we find ourselves a little bit like Gomer instead of like God. So let me ask you a question. Why in the world? Does God put a chapter like this in the Bible? Why a chapter like chapter 8 of Hosea in the Bible? Let me just suggest a few reasons. Number one, to teach us. God wants to teach us. He tells us the truth, whether we like it or not. A second reason he tells us this is to warn us. He warns us. He doesn't want the whirlwind for us, and so he warns us about what happens when you sow the wind. And God is, out of his love, he warns us. But he also tells us this. He tells you this because he has something better for you. Something better. He wants something better for you than a life of promiscuity and chasing every new fad and running after the culture and trying to be popular and trying to think like the world thinks and trying to do what the world does. He wants something better for you and he has it. It's not always easier. It's not always popular. It's, it's always at the end of, often at the end of some great challenges and difficulties, but God wants something better for you. He wants you to experience his grace and his love and his purpose and his plan. Like Hosea had something better for Gomer, a life of love, a life like it should be. God in heaven wants you to experience the fullness of his love. And so he's saying these words to us. He gives us this chapter so we will stop chasing the world and so we will come back to him and find that he has what's right and good and best for us and he's had it all along. And he's waiting for us to surrender and come back to him and follow him. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we bow, maybe when I said a few moments ago about some of you may be here who have never trusted Christ as Savior, maybe you've been religious, but you 
don't really have a genuine relationship with God. Maybe that resonated with your heart and God is reminding you that you need to be saved. And this day, would you repent of your sins? Would you place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you? Would you receive him as Savior? Ask him to save you, and he will, and he will. Christian, could I suggest that perhaps the reason God has you here, perhaps the reason he let you listen to a chapter 8 of the book of Hosea is because he wants something better for you, and he wants you to follow him. And he made you for something more than just chasing the world. He made you for him. And he loves you. He proved that on the cross. Would you say yes to him? Would you say, God, I'm going to keep the commitments you have for me and follow the word you give to me and go the direction, get on the path that leads to what you want for my life instead of the path that leads to the whirlwind? God, I want to follow you. God will honor that prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for telling us the truth. I thank you for warning us. And I thank you for reminding us that there's something better that you have for us. Often we, like Gomer, want to chase everything but what's best for us. But today you remind us that you do have something better. And so today we want to say yes to you, to the commitments we make to you, to live out that truth that Jesus is Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.